Well, good evening. It is so good to be with you uh, here in person um, as we continue our series on Jonah. Um, if you uh, have your Bibles, we are going to be reading from chapter 3 tonight. Um, but as you're turning there, you have your notes and you can look on the screen also when you get there. But man, I'm not, I'm not trying to over-spiritualize this moment, but I just, I have sensed just an extra measure of God's presence here tonight. And uh, before we get into God's word, I'm going to ask you just, let's just take a moment to lean into that and to ask God to, uh, to stir our hearts for his word and an encounter with him. Will you pray with me? Father, we lean in to your presence tonight. I know that um, our routines sometimes can get in the way of what the Lord would have, but we would ask you tonight to use your liberty, for this is your house and your papa, and we trust you in all that is happening. Father, I sense that the spirit realm is alive tonight. I sense that the spirit of the Lord is moving. And I want to just ask you tonight that as we open your most holy word, that you will cause the atmosphere to be freed from any kind of darkness or any kind of distractions. We want to pray tonight that you will have a wide open lane into our hearts, that you will stir us, that you will motivate us, that you will speak to us in a way that we most need. And Father, we will commit it all to you. We will be reminded tonight that Jesus is King. We will be reminded tonight that everything that we say and do is all for you. And so we will bless you and we will thank you. Speak to us tonight, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. Amen. I just, I, we join together. And as Pastor Glenn said, the, the presence of the Lord is, is always with us. But there is what sometimes I call a concentrated presence of the Lord, where it's just an overwhelming sense, a heaviness and a, an exuberance and excitement. You know that the Lord is near. And I, I sense that tonight. I'm very excited to continue in, in Jonah. Tonight is our, our fourth night together, I believe. And we're going to be in uh, Jonah chapter 3 tonight. Next week, we will wrap up the book of Jonah in chapter four. And then the following week, which is two weeks from tonight, Pastor will continue his series on the life of Moses, which has been incredible thus far. And so you're going to want to make sure that you are here for that. Uh, tonight, we're in Jonah chapter three, and I want to give you a real quick recap. Um, perhaps you haven't been able to watch online or you haven't been here in person. Uh, the book of Jonah begins with a prophet a man of God who basically lives in the presence of the Lord and the voice of the Lord comes to Jonah and he tells him to go to this great grand city called Nineveh and to exclaim that the Lord is coming to judge the people of Nineveh unless they turn in repentance. And Jonah does not like that because he has some internal issues that we'll talk about uh, against Jonah so, or against Nineveh. And so he turns and literally goes in the opposite direction. He gets on a ship he tries to sail away, but it's not very long before he gets uh, not too far along the way that the Lord, the Bible says, sends a storm onto the sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and the storm, uh, the lightning and the wind and the waves and the rain, everything is just about to break the ship apart. The ship is about to just implode. All of the mariners on the ship and Jonah himself are about to perish. And so uh, they all come together and they say, um, you know, what in heaven is going on? Who is causing all this stuff? And they end up deciding that Jonah is the person who has brought this, this issue upon them. Jonah then confesses that he is the one and he suggests that they throw him overboard in order to silence. And ultimately that's exactly what they do. They end up throwing him overboard because Jonah is the type of prophet who has such a profound hatred towards the people of Nineveh that he would rather die than offer them any hope. And so they throw him overboard and he goes and likely he thinks that he's about to sink to his death, but the Lord had other plans and he appoints a fish or a great sea creature that comes and swallows Jonah whole. Jonah is in the belly of that creature for three days and three nights. Jonah in the belly, he begins to repent. He cries out to God. He repents of his sins and confesses that, Lord, I will do everything that you've asked me to do if you will only let me live. And so what we find in Jonah chapter two 
is that the gospel, the good news, forgiveness, restoration, all of these things, these things are not just for sinners. We find that the gospel is good news for us as saints. It's good for Jonah that God is merciful with Jonah, right? It is good for me that God is merciful with me because I have tendencies to stray. In Jonah 3 tonight, what we're going to find is that the gospel is not just for saints, but it's for sinners. It's for people who are far away from God that don't know the good news of Christ and forgiveness and the mercy of God and all these kind of things. And so here in just two quick chapters, we see chapters one and two where the, all of scripture is just focused on the life of Jonah and his rebellion. And then in chapter three, we kind of pan over and the focus is removed from Jonah And it's focused upon the heathen. It's focused upon the sinners, the people, the Ninevites is what uh, the Bible calls them, the people of Assyria. And so we pick up at the very last verse of chapter two, and we're going to read the the whole of chapter three. You can follow along in your notes or or on the screen. The Bible says this, and, and the Lord spoke to the fish after Jonah had repented. The Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And then he called out, Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, throughout scripture, anytime you see 40 or or 40 days or 40 years, oftentimes, the majority of the time, not every time, but the majority of the time, it is associated with some type of judgment on, upon people or a testing of a person. So when Noah is in the ark, it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. When the, the children of Israel are going through the wilderness, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. There's 40 years of testing. Um, we see even Goliath, when Goliath goes and he challenges the army of Israel, the Bible says that he challenged them for 40 days. Jesus, when he is taken in, the spirit of God drives him into the wilderness and he is tempted, he is in the wilderness for 40 days. Now, there are some people that say, uh, you know, some scholars, they say, well, um, the 40 the number 40 is just kind of symbolic for judgment or testing or whatever. And they may be true, but they're not. Um, I really think that the, the 40 is, is very literal, especially in cases when scripture says 40 days. And so Jonah declares to the city of Nineveh, he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the most powerful, one of the most powerful verses in the whole book of Jonah comes next. And the Bible says this, And the people of Nineveh believed God. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth. From the greatest of them to the least of them, the word of the Lord reached uh, the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne. He removed his robe and he covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes, which is traditionally just a form of repentance or mourning. And the Bible says, and the king of of Nineveh issued a proclamation and published it throughout Nineveh. And this is what it said. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hand. And who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And God, when he saw what the people of Nineveh did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. I hope in my heart that there is a prophet in the land, in the world, in the nations 
that is writing prophetically about the United States of America. A statement that would say, and the people of the United States believed God. And I pray that there's a prophet writing somewhere the very words that when God saw what they did and how he turned, they turned from their evil way, that God would relent of the disaster that he promised to come upon them. I pray that there is a prophet that is writing those very words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Amen. When I was, when I was eight or nine years old, I grew up uh, outside of Pensacola, Florida, and my wife did as well. And um, uh, I grew up there when I was probably eight or nine years old. I remember I had these two cousins. They were older than I was. And one was about four years older. The other was like seven years older than me. And um, I was like eight years old. And and you know how it is. It's kind of like you're the annoying little cousin. You're kind of like a gnat and they're always trying to shoo you away, you know, and, um, but they were good to me. They really took, took time with me and they cared for me. They would, they would mistreat me themselves but they would never let anybody else mistreat me. You know what I'm saying? They were those kind of cousins. And uh, um, I loved them so much. And one day our, our mothers decided that they were going to go shopping. So they dropped us off at my grandmother's house. They dropped us off at Mimi's house. And uh, they just said, Mimi, you, you take care of them if you can deal with them, whatever. So I was eight or nine years old. And my cousins, that means they were in their early to mid teenage years. And I remember um, we got bored and so we decided that we were gonna leave Mimi's house and we were gonna cross the street and there was a wooded lot over there and there were all these you know, trees and trails and all this kind of stuff. And one of my cousins as we were exploring, um, he just happened to have a cigarette lighter on it. And uh, it was like a Zippo lighter, you know? And uh, he, he struck the lighter and we, we started talking about things and we decided that since we were in the woods, we might as well make a fire, right? And so we went and we went, you know, to this area and we grabbed some sticks and some brush and stuff and tried to build a fire. And it was, it was unusually windy that day. So it, it's kind of like we couldn't get anything going. And so we left that pile and we kind of covered it with some sand and we went over here and we tried to do the same thing and it just, it wouldn't catch fire. And so we, we covered it with sand and then we, we went over here and we went over here and we did it like five or six different times. And ultimately, I mean, the same thing over and over again. We tried to light a fire, it wouldn't go. We threw sand on it, we walked away. And so by the time we get to the fifth or sixth pile over here, we just decided, we were like, okay, forget it. We're going back to Mimi's house. There's nothing to do here, you know? And so we go and we, we begin to walk towards Mimi's house. And for whatever reason, I turned around to where we were just leaving. And every single one of those sand piles were now bursting with flames bursting with flames. I'm not exaggerating here. And so I told my cousins, I said, we got fire, you know, and they ran over and, and they started trying to like put out the fires. And so they're throwing more sand on it. I'm a moron. So I'm like throwing sticks on it, trying to put the fire out and it's only making the fire worse and everything. I'm like, I'm eight. And uh, the fire's just growing and growing and growing. And uh, we, are, we are freaking out. We're doing everything that we can. One of my cousins runs next door to the wooded lot as a house and he just grabs the person's water hose and he starts trying to spray the fire and everything. And so at some point it just completely got out of hand. And what we decided to do is we decided to go to Mimi's and tell Mimi. Mimi looked out the window, she saw the fire, she called 911. There are fire trucks blazing down the road. There are ambulances. The police show up. I mean, it is just an absolute disaster. And when it was all said and done, when it was all said and done, we had destroyed about an acre and a half of land by trying to make a fire. And it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like we were doing anything, but, but this is what we found that had happened. We found that we had tried to start something and the wind had kind of like kind of put it out. And so we decided that we were going to add on top of it and put it out. But there was a greater wind that was blowing that we didn't know about. And that greater wind just came and it blew the sand off. And it kind of, instead of extinguishing the fire, it kind of fanned the flame. You know what I'm saying? So all those things began to burst and to grow and, and to do all this. And there is a, a, a very profound lesson that Jonah learns in this story that is related to my arson incident, okay? And the lesson is simply this, that when it comes to the message of the good news of Christ, 
of the compassion of God, of the merciful nature of God, of the unrelenting grace of God that is in pursuit of people. It does not matter what anybody does. It does not matter what anybody doesn't do. It doesn't matter who tries to extinguish it. It is going to prevail. Whether we want it to or not, God's good work and his message of redemption is going to go into all the earth and it's going to accomplish his thing. The sad truth of it is this, is that Jonah did not realize that until he found himself in the belly of the whale or the fish. And so the Bible says that Jonah begins to repent and he, he begins to say, Lord, I will do whatever it is that you want me to do. And we see Jonah make this huge turn where he realizes that God is going to accomplish this with me or without me, but it's pretty evident that God wants to use me. You know what I'm saying? And so Jonah comes to this place where he has, he has been given just chance after chance after chance. And it's not just a chance to do what God wants him to do, but it's a chance at life. It's a chance at redemption. It's a, it's a chance at repentance, but it's also a chance to fulfill the call of God that is on his life. And it is such a good reminder to us that even in our failure, it is not final unless we allow it to be final. And thank God Jonah did not allow his failure to be final. As a matter of fact, we'll, we'll see here in just a few minutes, Jonah answers, he rises to the occasion, he answers the call of God on his life. And it's not just that he was obedient to God, but the profound anointing of the Spirit of God rested on Jonah that 120,000 people turned to Yahweh in a moment right? So it is the goodness of God that we see here unfolding in the life of Jonah. It's not news to us though. If you've read your Bible, you know that this happens all the time. This is a frequent happening in the people of God. We are incredibly flawed. We're incredibly messed up. Even, even the best of us make some of the worst decisions from time to time. You see this riddled all throughout scripture. You see it with, with you know, in the very beginning with Adam and Eve and they mess up, but God then redeems. And you see Cain kills his brother and God redeems. And Abraham is trying to fulfill the promise of God on his own terms, but then God redeems it. And you you see this over and over again with Samson who, man, he didn't just get a second chance, right? He got like 300 second chances. Uh, you see it with, with Simon Peter as he even denies the, the, the even relationship with his Lord. But then Jesus comes and restores that relationship when it's all said and done with. Uh, there was a guy named George Morrison. This is what he says. I love this. This is what he says. He says, the victorious Christian life is a series of new beginnings. And the reality is this, is that whether we oftentimes have good endings or happy endings, and God chooses to create a new beginning for us, or whether we have a lot of really flawed bad endings, the truth of the matter is that God will create something new. The Bible declares that, that every morning his mercies are new. And that's not because his mercies run short or they're not sufficient. It's because we are so flawed, right? And so we get this understanding that as Jonah returns, that the, the, that the presence of the Lord still remains on him. Now, I think that any, any wise person who reads their Bible should be asking questions as they're reading scripture. The, the, the question that has just riddled me all, ever since I've been a Christian with, with Jonah is why in heaven's name is Jonah running from the Lord in the first place? How is a prophet of God who, like, that's your identity, that is what you were called to do? Um, prophets were, were very much to themselves and they had a very distinguished call and this is who you are, but you're running from the call. And it's always been just um, flabbergasting me. Why would he even run? And so what I began to do is I began to think and I thought, what are the reasons that Jonah could have run? And I came up with four theories that for reasons that I feel like Jonah, even in the goodness of God, knowing the goodness and the gracious heart of God, why Jonah would have run. And I wanna run through these four questions that I asked myself. Uh, here real quickly. Number one is simply this. Did Jonah feel like the task was too difficult, right? I feel like that's a valid question, okay? 
However, I think it's doubtful because Jonah is clearly a successful prophet. In the book of 2 Kings, we see where Jonah prophesies and everything in scripture that we see Jonah uh, uh, prophesy over, it comes to pass. So I don't know that Jonah looked at this and said, no, this is far too much of a, of a difficult uh, task. I'm not gonna be able to do it. I don't think that Jonah looked at uh, the message and said, man, this message is just too much to memorize. There's no way I'm gonna be able to remember or recall what the Lord is trying to say. Uh, no, the message that Jonah preaches literally in the Hebrew is five words. Okay, it's five words that Jonah declares to the city of, man, it would be incredible if I could get up here on a Wednesday night and say five words and have like all of Lexington repent, right? Or all of Irmo, they're just, I'm just like, uh, Jesus loves you, um, come home, right? And they're like, Whoa! and they come in, that would be amazing, right? No. I, in some ways, I'm like, man, my job is more difficult than Jonah's job, right? I'm, I'm expounding on things. Jonah had five words in Hebrew to communicate to these people. It wasn't that the task was too tough. I then asked myself, was it because the task was too far away, right? Was it a geographical issue? Well, when you consider Nineveh was only about 500 miles to the northeast, okay, but then when you consider where Jonah was going, which was modern day Spain, from where he was, was 2,500 miles, right? So the, the very notion that Jonah was willing to travel five times further to get away from what God was calling him to do is evidence that kind of debunks that whole theory right there, right? That's like me saying that I would rather go to San Diego and do ministry than go to Washington, D.C., which is only 500 miles away, right? San Diego is five times further away. And so I don't think it was an issue of, of distance. The third question I asked was, is the task too risky, right? Now, this may be a valid point. There may be an element of fear involved with Jonah because Assyrians were incredibly bloodthirsty individuals, right? Like their entire culture was made up of, of it's almost the equivalent of like a terrorist mindset. Their job wasn't just to come in and take over and, and kill and destroy. That was not their only thing. Their motive was to instill fear into the lives of the surrounding nations so that they would never try to encroach on the Assyrians. And so, so even when the king is speaking to the people, he sets out the decree, what does he say? He says, turn from your evil ways and from the violence that's in your hands. So even the king himself, he knew their greatest sin. He knew what the Lord was coming to judge them for. And so in some ways you look at this and you say, well, maybe, uh, maybe Jonah was a little nervous uh, about the fear factor. Uh, listen to what another one of the prophets wrote in Nahum chapter three, talking about Nineveh. He says, what sorrow awaits Nineveh? The city of murder and lies. She is crammed with wealth and is never without victims. There are countless casualties, heaps of bodies, so many bodies that people stumble over them. And so, although I believe that fear may have been an issue for Jonah, being the man of God, being the prophet, I cannot imagine him thinking that it was more risky than go, to go to Nineveh than it was to disobey the Lord. Right? And so that, on another hand, kind of debunks all that. So I'll tell you what the, I call it the PCT, the Pastor Corey theory. This is what I think the theory, and I, and I believe scripture will, will support this theory. I think that Jonah's primary issue was that he had something so deeply rooted in him against the Ninevites that he felt the Lord was bypassing his issue against them and being far too compassionate on the sinner. I think the prophet, the prophet, the man of God thought that the Lord was being too compassionate on the sinners. Therefore, he bucked the authority of God and he chose to go his own way. Now, the reason I believe this is because it's written in chapter four, which we're gonna to get to next week, okay? So I cheated a little bit. It's not completely my theory, okay? However, 
I believe it's the right theory, okay? But this is the point of what I'm trying to say. Jonah had some issues against the Ninevites, right? Jonah grew up understanding the brutality and the fear factor. I'm sure that Jonah heard stories about the headhunters and the wars and the brutality that the people or the Assyrians were, were, were throwing against him. And it wasn't just that Jonah was wrestling in himself. I want you to think about this. Think about the human nature of Jonah. Not only is he wrestling with all these issues within himself, but Jonah the prophet, he's got a reputation to uphold, right? His people, Israel, there was a common mindset that the people of God are just the Jewish people. They are just Israel or the only people of God. Who is Jonah to go and to try to graft some other people in? That was a very prevailing thought. Even, even in the times by the time Jesus gets here, even into the book of Acts, this is a, a prevailing thought. And so Jonah, not only is he wrestling with himself, but he's saying, hey, what's mom and daddy going to think? Right? What are they going to feel? What are, what are my prophet pals going to think? Are they going to give me a high five? Are they going to kill me? What are they going to do? Because I am basically going to the enemy and offering them an olive branch. And so what Jonah does is something that we cannot afford to do. And listen to me say this. Jonah allows the sin of Nineveh that is against him. He allows the sin against him to become sin in him. He allows the sin that has been done against him to produce sin in him, right? All of us have seen this play out in one way or another, right? We all have known or known about um, an adult woman who in her childhood, or God forbid in her, her early childhood, was molested by a man but as she grew and developed into a grown woman, she now has a severe hatred for all men because of the sin that has been done to her, right? We've seen this play out in, in church life, right? We've seen somebody gets hurt, maybe even justifiably so. Someone has been hurt at one church. And instead of trying to work the situation out through scriptural means, Matthew 18 and so on, instead of being able to do that, there is a choice to remove themselves and to begin to slander the church or the leadership or whatever, to spread rumors or gossip or whatever. Now, that doesn't happen in every situation. But I'm just saying, if you've been a Christian long enough, you have known people that allowed sin against them to produce sin in them. And this is exactly where we find Jonah, which is so incredibly ironic for Jonah because it's not like Israel was really far off the sin marker, right? Israel was, was they were in, in no stretch of the imagination innocent. And I'm not even talking about their war against other nations and all that. I'm talking about internally. Read through the book of Judges, how the people of Israel, there, there is an, an, an incredible, in the worst way, a story of, of this man who, who goes to get his concubine, like one of his wives kind of thing, and he goes to retrieve her from her father's house and they're traveling and they end up staying somewhere overnight and, and men from the city rush in and they want to kill the man and the man of the house says, please don't harm my guest. But here, take my virgin daughter and take his concubine and do with them as you please. And the Bible says that, that they took the concubine and they literally raped her to death overnight. And the Bible says that her body was lifeless the next morning. So the man takes his, his lifeless concubine back to his home. And then the Bible says something that is so unbelievable, but so true. The Bible says that he took his concubine, her lifeless body, and he cut her body up into, into 12 different parts. He tied a note onto each part of the, the body and he shipped them to all the different 12 tribes of Israel. And he confessed to them, he said, dear brothers, is this the place that we have gotten in our society that we are willing to do this to our own kind? And you would have thought that repentance would have prevailed and apologies would have come forth. But no, it produced civil war among the tribes. So it's so ironic here that Jonah has such an angst against the Ninevites when Israel doesn't have clean hands herself. 
It is such an ironic moment here, but this is a truth that, that I believe is true for me, and sadly, I believe it's true for most people. That when we weigh our sins against the sins of other people, the scale almost always tips in our favor. It almost always tips in our favor. The good news is that the scales of God are perfectly balanced, right? And so we've got to be careful not to allow something that's been done against us to produce something evil that's within this. So, so Jonah is wrestling with all this, but nonetheless, he begins to preach the message that God has given him. Let me just say this before, before we continue on. Let me just say this. The messages of judgment, and I know right now, especially in American culture, there are messages of judgment. Um, there are messages of no judgment. There, there are all these kind of things. And, and this is the only thing I'll say, and I probably shouldn't even say it because it's not comprehensive and I can't explain myself, but I'm, I'm just going to say it anyway. Messages, divine messages of divine judgment are not always inescapable events. For Nineveh, it wasn't inescapable, right? There, there are other illustrations throughout scripture that are, that are not inescapable. Sometimes when God sends a decree that judgment is coming, sometimes it acts almost like a hurricane warning, right? I grew up in Florida. We had hurricanes all the time. My family just got hammered last week with hurricanes, but, but this is my point. When a hurricane is approaching, you do two things. Number one, you pray that it's going to go away, right? You repent, you ask God, turn the storm, right? But if God doesn't turn the storm, you'd better be prepared for the storm, right? So in, in, in our context, when, when we hear all these different messages, all these different kind of things that, that God is going to judge, God may, it's hard to look at our nation right now. It is very hard to look at our nation right now and not believe that God on some level has begun the process. But let me just say this, just because the process has begun doesn't mean that it has to end in that way. There is a turning that I believe can happen. That's why I think this weekend's event, the 21 days of prayer, and I'm telling you, I, I, hope, I hope every person at Christian Life can be here this Saturday for the return, uh, to pray and to repent and to turn to the Lord so that we will turn, that we will have a moment just as Nineveh had, because I do believe that we can turn from certain things. And here's the thing about Jonah. Jonah understood this principle. This is why he didn't wanna preach to the Ninevites. You realize that Jonah, and I know this sounds like so heartless. We look at a guy like Jonah and we're like, man, we're talking about the souls of men and women and children. But listen to me, I could probably name a lot of Christians out there today that wishes some Republicans or Democrats wouldn't get a chance to turn, okay? So I'm just saying, we've gotta be careful before we are too harsh with Jonah and we need to turn the tide and look at our own hearts and examine to make sure there is clear between us and the Lord. So, so Jonah doesn't, he knows this principle that there is perhaps a turning that people can do, but he doesn't wanna do it. And this is the reason why. Jonah is afraid that the Ninevites are going to be saved, but not sanctified. All right, let me, let me unfold this. He is afraid that God is going to save their souls but the country is going to continue to ravage nations around them, right? This is his grand fear that Israel, Jonah is a patriot, but Jonah is afraid that the Ninevites, that God is going to save them. But in due season, they are going to rise up again and show their true colors and overtake the nation of Israel. And can I tell you what the unpopular truth is? That is exactly what happened. Less than 30 years after Jonah's message reaches the people of Nineveh, and there is this, this profound turning. Less than a generation later, the nation of Assyria invades the northern kingdom of Israel and completely demolishes her, right? So Jonah's fear of what is going to happen actually comes true, but notice this. God still called him to do it. 
God still had called him to do it. And I'll tell you this, even if God had revealed to Jonah, this is what's gonna happen, it doesn't mean that God would have changed his mind and said, Jonah, don't worry about it. God wanted the redemption and the the chance to be offered at repentance for this group of people, and that is exactly what he did. And, And let me just say this, let me just say this. I think on some level, Jonah was justified. Like in the same way that a, that, a, that a grown woman who was molested as a child, for her to hate grown men, there is some justification there, right? There, I mean, I can understand that emotionally. I can really come to grips with that. But this is a profound, very difficult truth that, that we all have to get our heads around as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. That just because something feels justified or just because something feels right, does not mean it is right. And so I would just caution us to just be very aware before we allow things that people have done to us to invade us in a certain way. So Jonah has this huge return. When Jonah returns, he goes to Nineveh, he preaches the message of repentance to them. Nineveh, called the great city, the exceedingly great city, they begin to repent. We see that, that Nineveh is great in size. They're great in success. They are, they are very much an industrial. Uh, they're they're kind of like a port city because they got two rivers on either side. So a lot of merchandise is coming and going. They're, they're a megatropolis going on, but they are also great in their sin. And this is part of Jonah's justification for not wanting them to turn, right? So Jonah understands that their signature trait is like this, this vile violence against all people, right? They don't have any, any favoritism against them. They just destroy people. And they're, they're, they're just, you can read in history, in secular history, about the vile, wicked behavior of the Assyrian Empire. I mean, they would take their victims and outside the gates of the city, they would have these enormous wooden uh, uh, pillars that, that were spiked on the tip. And they would take their, their, those that they had gotten captive. They would strip them down, strip their clothing off. And they would take their bodies and drop them on that sphere. And that thing would pierce them and stick through them while they were still alive. And they would roast in the desert sun until they died. And the Assyrians would not clean up after themselves, but they would leave it there because they wanted every person that passed by on boat, every person that rode by on camel, and every person that walked by to understand that you don't mess with the Assyrians because they'll do you wrong. They would have, uh, the Bible even said there, there are piles, they would, they would create these piles of skulls at the front of their gates. I want to read to you an inscription um, one of the kings had, had posted on one of their temple walls. This is what he said. He was describing the violence that he had done to a person. He said, I built a pillar at the city gate. So he builds this four-sided pillar at the city gate. And I filleted alive all the chief men who had revolted. And I covered the pillar with their skin. Some I walled up inside the pillar. Some I impaled, I impaled upon the pillar. There are stories of, of certain kings they would take and they would skin their, their, their enemies, their victims alive. And there are stories they would take their skin and insulate their homes with the flesh of these people so that they could stay warm in the desert air at night and in the winter times. They were an incredibly wicked people. But let me just say this. Although they were an incredibly wicked people, their evil had reached a fever pitch. And all of a sudden, their thriving nation had begun to see certain obstacles that were encroaching on them. Their economy was pretty stable, but their borders were being shaken. In different cities throughout the Assyrian Empire, certain, certain groups were starting to revolt. Uh, there were, there were uh, certain uh, external conflicts. There was some famine that was going on in the land. They were being shaken in such a way that caused them, this is what I personally believe, they were being shaken in such a way as a nation. They lived in such profound darkness and blindness that when the glimpse of Jonah and a moment of hope had been opened before their eyes, that they hopped on it as quickly as they can. And let me, let me just say this about our current situation. It is very clear that our nation's being shaken right now. Very clear that our nation's being shaken. 
And I'm not, I'm not here to define what God is doing and what God is not doing, but I am here to say that God is allowing all these things to happen because nothing happens throughout the fingers of God. He allows all things. And I will simply say this. It's what C.S. Lewis would call a severe mercy. It's when God allows bad things to happen so that worse things don't happen. And in the context of a nation like this, perhaps, perhaps God is allowing the shaking to happen in our nation so that people will be overwhelmed with such profound darkness and deceit and deception that when they hear the truth of the gospel, when they see the light of Christ, the harvest that we have been praying for is going to rush in like a flood. I'm telling you this, I was reading an article um, recently about Generation Z. They call it Gen Z, and I don't know the dates of what, the younger generation. And this is what the article says about the context of, of, of Americans that are in this generation. It basically, in a nutshell, it basically says that they will be the first post-Christian nation, which is horrifying to consider on one hand. But can I put a positive spin on it and say this? It's not that this generation is growing up rejecting the gospel. They've never heard the gospel, which means that hearts will be tender. That means souls will be primed when they hear the profound good news that Jesus came to save their souls. I believe that they are gonna turn and we're gonna see an influx. I think that's what God allowed to happen in Nineveh that there was so much darkness that was overwhelming. God allowed it to happen so they would be quick to repent when the message of the good news came to pass. I, I believe that that is what happened. And, and when they did that, the Bible says that every single person from king to goat herder, every single person turned to Yahweh. And it seems that these weren't just mere words that they, you know, we're in church and raise their hand, yeah, I'll accept Jesus. This seems, their actions seem like a, a very deep, profound conviction settled on them. And they genuinely turned to Christ in this moment. And the Bible says the most, one of the most powerful and most refreshing verses that you'll ever read is Jonah 3.10. That when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. And so tonight, I will just simply close these, these next couple of minutes with just a couple of, of very real truths that I think is important that, that we understand. Number one is this, is that I need to be a person who is asking the Lord not only to reveal dark things in my life, hatred, issues, unresolved issues with other people. I need to be a person who's not only asking God to reveal those things to me, but ask God to help me remove those things from my life. I don't want to be, in, in that minute context, I don't want to be a Jonah in that respect, okay? The second thing I would say is simply this, that I never know what the Lord is doing in the heart of another person. Jonah had no idea how the Lord had gone before him to the Ninevites. How God had just whispered into their ears from time to time that there is more than this life. That there is a creator that loves that there is hope for the future, that there is light at the end of the tunnel. Jonah had no idea, but he presumed to understand that the Ninevites were nothing but sheer and pure evil. And because of his assumption, he didn't even want to give them a chance. And so let me, let me close this. I really don't have time, but let me give you just a very brief synopsis. Um, I struggle, I almost never shared the breadth of my testimony, my story of coming to Christ. And the reason I don't is because I don't want to draw attention to it because it is pretty severe. And 
I really struggle a lot of times to know whether I, I should or I shouldn't. And so therefore, oftentimes I just opt out and I say, I haven't, I haven't spoken in my testimony in years, I think. Um, but, I, but I just wanna, I wanna say a, a couple of things. That as I was going through my teenage years coming from a broken home, um, I did all the rebellious things that kids do, just a normal kid, right? Um, but by the time I had, I had reached about the, the age of 17, I had really gotten into some dark areas. Um, I, had, I had a couple of habits that were um, narcotic related. Um, I had just, all of my friends except for me had you know, been in and out of jail a lot and just really bad situation, just, just anything you can think of, just a really bad thing. But I want to, I want to say this, that little did, really, honestly, really little did I know and little did the people who were in my life know that just a few months before I came to Christ, that the Lord had been doing things inside of me that I didn't know were the Lord at the time, right? I didn't know it was the Lord. But now I look back and it was clear and obvious, you know, I feel like a moron, that clearly it was the Lord. Um, but I'll tell you this, there were, there were moments, there was a morning that I woke up and again, I'm so embarrassed. I don't even like to, I think part of the reason I don't like to share is because there is, a, there is an element of embarrassment there. But one morning I woke up in a crack house that had no floor in it. It was a dirt floor. And I remember waking up that morning and I remember looking around and I remember saying, this is not the direction I want my life to go, right? I remember cognitively thinking that. Now it didn't stop my behavior, from that moment. But I remember in that moment having like an epiphany moment. And I thought, this is not the trajectory that I want my life to go. A few months later, um, I was at a friend's house and we had, I don't want to get into it all, but we had, we had taken a hallucinogen as, as friends. And little did we know that we had a friend that, that basically he was one of our closest friends and he had vanished from the face of the planet about six months earlier. We hadn't seen him or heard from him in like six months. He just vanished. I mean, we knew he was alive, but he was nowhere around us. And about 45 minutes after we had dropped this hallucinogen, just before it kicked in, all of a sudden, we get this knock at the door. And it's this guy that we haven't seen for like six months. And so he comes in and we're like, man, where the heck have you been? You know, and all this kind of stuff. And he begins to tell us about his encounter with the living God and how God had saved his soul. And he was so different and all this kind of stuff. And, and long story short, he asked me if I want to go on a ride with him. And, and I said, yeah. And that was, you know, in some way the worst thing I've ever done. In some ways the best thing I've ever done. I got in the car and immediately before we got to the end of the road, he said, Corey, he said, have you ever thought what, what would happen if you died in this condition? And I thought, well, that wasn't, you know, <laughs> subtle. Um, and I told him, I said, I said, Randy, I've, I've, you know what, what I'm doing right now, and you know how this will affect my mind. I don't want to have this conversation. He said, yep, you're right. You're totally good. But it was already too late because throughout the rest of that night, I had the most demonic encounters that it's horrific to even think of, okay? Twelve hours later after this horrendous experience, back then we had pagers, Remember this? It was awesome. All right. I get a page from this number I don't know. And I call, and on the other end of the line is a young lady that I haven't seen or spoken to in six or seven, eight years. And her name just happened to be Joy Carpenter. And I call her, and she's asking how I'm doing. I talked to your sister and all this kind of stuff. And she's concerned about you and all this kind of stuff. I'd love if you just come to church with me. I'm talking within a 20-hour window here, all these things are beginning to happen. Conversations that I had had with my sister the weeks leading up to this moment, thoughts that I was thinking about my future, uh, all these kind of things, encounters that, were, that I was having that nobody on the outside would ever have a clue was going on, right? And when I finally came to the place where I surrendered my life to Christ, I'm just going to tell you this. I didn't look the way that I should have looked walking into a church. I didn't act and I didn't talk. I didn't carry myself in the way that a person who represents Christ probably should have. But I'm gonna tell you this, 
at the very small church that I was a part of, not one person ever called me out on it. And I'm just telling you this, it would have probably only taken one to judge what they saw on the outside without knowing what was going on on the inside. And so I just want to say this to us as we close. Just as the people of Nineveh, you and I have no idea what the Lord is doing in the hearts of your children, in the hearts of your grandchildren, in the hearts of your husbands and your wives. Listen to me. And in the people of this city. You and I have no idea, but I promise you this. He is in pursuit of their souls. And so I just want to implore you, don't give up. Don't give up. I owe my salvation to a praying mama, a praying sister, and a praying grandmother. I owe my soul to them because they never, they refuse to give up on me. And so I just want to encourage you, don't give up. Don't stop praying. Keep on believing that we are going to see the harvest in our individual lives, as a church, as a nation. I believe it's going to happen. Amen. I'm so sorry I've kept you three minutes late. Let me pray for you, and then we'll let you go. Father, I come to you in the, the awesome and just the compassionate, loving name of Jesus that no longer sees us as sinners, but sees us as sons and daughters, as saints of the Most High God, as people who have been elevated into heavenly places. Thank you, Lord, for that privilege and for your good work in our lives. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the blood of Jesus. And I thank you for the people of God who do not always judge a book by its cover. I thank you for every person in this auditorium who has been praying for the souls of family and friends and people that they may not even know. And I pray, Father, that you will just renew our our spiritual energy, that you will provide us with the faith that we need to see this thing to fruition. And may we in the United States see a massive turning, just as the people of Nineveh, just from the king to the goat herder, may we see a massive turning for the glory and for the renown of our King, Jesus Christ. We bless you. I love you. Bless your people, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, and amen. The Lord bless you so much. Thank you for being here tonight. We will see you Sunday.